listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, the Post family had a great Thanksgiving. It was our first Thanksgiving away from home. And uh, we went up to Cambria and had a wonderful time. And, uh, and now we're back. And I'm glad to be back. Glad to be here with my church family. I do want to highlight we have some missionaries that are with us uh, today. Uh, actually, two couples. Um, Alan and Lori Lotz are with us. And uh, yes. And actually, yeah, yeah, I'm seeing even more than I thought. So, so we have Andy and Chelsea Rattuno. And they have some friends next to them from Columbia that are with us. And then um, Jesse and Elizabeth Carell, I see them. So good to see you guys. Am I missing any other missionaries in this place? All right. Well, this weekend begins the season of Advent on the Christian calendar. And so we are taking a break from our normal series. We've been in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to take a break. And and during Advent, what we're going to do, you know, last week, uh, John Sponsler preached, did a fabulous job. Amen. Amen. And if you haven't listened to that, make sure you go on our podcast and listen to it. It's called The Rhythm of Life. Fantastic message. And at the very end, he, he led us in the prayer of St. Francis. And so what we're going to do in Advent, and it just kind of worked out this way, um, you know, after John preached and he included that prayer, I thought, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to take that prayer and I'm going to tie it into Advent, just little parts of it. So that's what we're going to do. Um, each one of these sermons that, that lead up to Christmas, we're going to take one little slice of the prayer of Francis and apply it to Advent. And then at the end of our service, you know, typically since I've been here, we started closing our service by praying the Lord's Prayer. Um, but during the season of Advent, we're going to close every service praying the prayer of Francis. And uh, if you don't know it, don't worry, it'll be up on the screen, all right? I'm sure most of you don't have it memorized, but I think it'll be the perfect way to conclude our service. But on this first Sunday of Advent, in the year 2021, the title of my message is The Tune Without Words. And it comes from a stanza from a poem that we're going to look at in just a moment. It's a poem that was written by um, Emily Dickinson. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the name Emily Dickinson, one of the greatest poets in American history. My daughter Reagan has always had a little bit of an interest in Emily Dickinson. We got a chance to visit her house, which is now a museum in Amherst, uh, Massachusetts. And, you know, she lived a fascinating life. Um, she was actually a very reclusive person, and she wasn't famous during her lifetime. She wasn't even trying to be famous. She was just a very um, kind of closed off person, spent her whole life pretty much in her house, in her room, writing poems. And she only published like a handful of them during her, her lifetime. But after she died in the year 1886, her sister found a box filled with like 1,800 poems that she had written. And four years later, those poems were published And, uh, you know, her style, Emily Dickinson's poetic style was so different. It was so unorthodox. And so the publisher actually made the mistake, in retrospect, 
the publisher heavily edited her poems in order to make them more customary, more standardized. And the critics panned the poems, hated them. But in the year 1955, a three-volume work of her poems was published, unedited form, and it was only then that literary critics realized what a poetic genius she was. And to this day, I mean, she's considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, American poet ever. And most people would rank her amongst the greatest poets in the history of the world. Um, but, but she was very much ahead of her time. And I think for, for at least partly because of that, she lived a very alienated life. And she felt like people didn't get her, that no one understood her. She felt very alone. And her whole life, she just basically wrote these poems to herself. Most of them were very short, and, and they went untitled. And that includes the poem that we're going to look at this morning. This is one stanza of, of the poem. There's only three stanzas. But let's look at this little stanza. And I want to keep this slide up for, um, for, for a couple minutes. Here's what she writes. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. And sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Deep inside of every human being, there's a thing with feathers, a bird. And it's a symbol for hope, according to Emily Dickinson. And so in each one of us, there is this hope, there's this craving, this yearning, this ache that, that yearns to soar above the clouds of the world's disappointments and frustrations, and sorrows, and sadness, and even death itself. We want to break free from all of the chains and restrictions of this, of this life. I think every single one of us, we feel that. You know, how many of you feel that? Where, you know, you just, there's something about life in this world, the way it currently is. It just, there's something broken. There's something off. There's something fallen about the world we live in. Amen? And I think Emily Dickinson being a poetic savant, she kind of felt this probably more powerfully, more profoundly than the average person. And there was a whole lot of melancholy in her life. And, and death always seemed so strange, so sorrowful, so tragic to her. And yet she says there's this song of hope that's going on in her heart, in the heart of everyone. And it's a song that never ends at all, even when you, you encounter your lowest point, when you feel emotionally crushed, there's still a part of you that holds out hope. It's what makes us human beings. Part of what makes us human beings is we hope. That's why we live, that's why we continue to exist, is because there's some ache in us. There's some yearning and craving that we have that's insatiable. And without that craving, without that hope, we die. And yet in this stanza, she says that this song of hope, it's a tune without the words. And I think what she means there is, yes, we have this craving, this ache, this hope in us, but we can't define it. We know that it's there, but we can't label it because it's a hope for something that's indescribable. The Germans have a word for this. It's the word sensut. Sensut. Everybody say it. Sensut. It's, it's an indescribable yearning and longing for something that cannot be clearly defined. C.S. Lewis highlights this term when he writes about this yearning in the soul, in the human soul, for a homeland. 
He says, you know, there's, there's this place that we remember. It's something we remember, a place that we belong, but we can't quite see it. It's like a vague dream. It's like, um, like a vague, distant memory, and we can't quite wrap our mind around it. We can't clearly see it, but we know that it's there, and we yearn for it, this place or this time or this state of being where everything is as it should be, and we feel at home. And the world that we live in right now, as it is, if we're honest, how many of you understand we're not really at home the way things are? I think even people who are not people of faith, even people who don't know Jesus, there's just something instinctive about us that we know the world as it is right now, this is, there's something broken about it. Even people who don't believe in God can just sense intuitively the world is broken. This is not the way things should be. There's so much pain and brokenness and heartache and troubles in this life and in this world, and this, it's not the way things should be. And yet in the midst of all of that, hope keeps on singing in our heart. It's a song that never ends. And what I want us to see this morning is that this song without words that's in our heart is there for a reason. This craving, this ache, this yearning for things to be made right, it's actually God-given. God put that ache in our hearts. He put that hope in our hearts. And as kingdom people, our job, our role, is to sing this song of hope, but to sing it without the words. Because the moment we try to put words to it, the moment, the moment we try to define it and put lyrics to it, we mess it up, and we squash the hope, and we misdirect it. And so our job is to sing this song of hope, but to let God write the lyrics. You'll see what I mean in a few moments. Well, there's a guy in the Bible who I think really captures this sense of hope. And it's a guy named Simeon. He's a very mysterious man. We don't know a whole lot about him. He just kind of pops in during one of the infancy narratives in Luke's gospel, when Luke is writing about the birth of Jesus, we, we, Simeon just kind of pops in and then he pops out and he's gone and we never, we never hear about him again. He's a strange figure. But we see Simeon just a few days after baby Jesus is born. Mary and Joseph cradle their newborn baby and they take him to Jerusalem where they're going to enter into the temple mount. They're going to climb the steps and walk into the temple courts where they're going to dedicate their newborn son because this was the Jewish custom. It was, it was law that you take your newborn baby and you dedicate your baby in the temple. And that's where we find Simeon. So let's look at the passage. We're actually going to probably look at this next week as well, and I'll take it in a totally different direction. So let's look at it. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. Watch this. Looking forward to the consolation of Israel. What in the world is that? We'll talk about it in just a moment. But Simeon, it says, was looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, and, and now he just kind of starts to sing his own song. He says in verse 29, Master, 
Now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. All right, now let's back up to that phrase I highlighted a moment ago. It says Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What is that? What does that mean? Well, let's, let's enter into the context for a moment. During the days when Simeon was alive, the Jewish people were being ruled over by a foreign power. In fact, they had been conquered and occupied and ruled over by foreign powers, depending on when you start counting, somewhere between six and 700 years. If you go all the way back to the year 722 BC, the Assyrians come and, and invade the northern kingdom of Israel, completely destroy it, decimate it, never to be the same. 150 years later, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire rise to power and they invade the southern kingdom of Judah and completely destroy the city of Jerusalem, burn the temple to the ground, deport all of the survivors and bring them to Babylon and rule over them there. And then after a few decades, now the Persian Empire rises to power. The Persians conquer the Babylonians and now the Jews are being ruled over by the Persians. And then... Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire rise to power and they conquer the Persians and now the, the Jews are being ruled over by the Greeks. And then the Greek Empire fractures and you have these Seleucid rulers who are now ruling over the Jewish people and then finally, by the time of Jesus, now the worst one of all, the Roman Empire was now ruling the world and they were occupying the land that God had given to God's people and the Jews are under the thumb of the Romans. And you see, the Romans were, were more cruel and more oppressive than any of the other pagan powers before them. And it was absolutely making these people's lives miserable. But you see, what was even worse than just being ruled over by these cruel, oppressive powers is that this whole season of, I mean, if you can call it a season, 800 years, that's a long season, but this was an attack on their own faith and their own sense of identity. You know, if you're a Jewish person living during this time, you want to see yourselves. We're God's people. We're, we're chosen by God. God's chosen nation. God made our nation. The one God, the true God, the one God who is supreme over all. And so if we're God's people, the supreme God, then why is it that for 800 years we've been conquered by wicked pagan powers. And so you got to understand, I mean, this was very disorienting. And many of these people had lost hope. They had become disillusioned, even with God. And so all along the way, God raises up prophets. And under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, these prophets begin to sing a song of hope, if you will. They begin to sing about hope. And they begin to foretell to the people of God that the time's going to come, this is going to be made right. 
And they begin to speak into the life of Israel and tell these people that even though you're under the the thumb of foreign occupation right now, things will not always be this way. There's coming a point God's going to step into human history. He's going to intervene just like he did when he uh, rescued our ancestors from Egypt. God's going to do it again. And he's going to raise up a king, a ruler, a Messiah from the line of David. Although this Messiah is gonna be unlike any king before him and any other king that exists because this king, he's gonna usher in the reign of Yahweh, not just over Israel, but over the entire earth and he's gonna make everything right. And this Messiah's reign will never end. And so they begin to sing this song of hope and Israel clung to this. And, and they, were, they were clinging to this hope and they were anticipating it. They were waiting for it. They were longing for it. The consolation of Israel. And see, that's what Simeon was waiting for. He was longing for things to be made right. He was longing for this coming king that God had promised. But what made Simeon unique is that somehow or another, God had communicated to him that he would not die until his eyes had seen the Messiah. So here's Simeon. I kind of imagine him to be a, possibly an elderly man. I don't know that for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he's obviously thinking about his death. He's thinking about mortality. And so I kind of imagine maybe he's at the latter stage of his life. And Simeon has this promise from God. I'm not going to die until I've seen the Messiah with my own eyes. So where does Simeon hang out? Where does he go? He goes to Jerusalem. And he hovers around the ent- one of the entrances to the Temple Mount. Why? Because Simeon's thinking, if there's a baby in Israel that's going to be born Messiah, the best place for me to rub shoulders with this Messiah and his parents is going to be right here. Because at some point, they're going to have to bring this infant into the temple courts to dedicate him to the Lord. So imagine this. Enter into this. Simeon, every day of his life, hovers around the entrance of the Temple Mount. Day after day, all day long, for weeks, for months, for years probably, perhaps even for decades, every day of his life, he watches baby after baby after baby being brought into the temple. Over that span of time, maybe hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of babies. And with every baby, he's wondering, he's asking, he's praying, is this the one, is this the one? He's waiting. And then all of a sudden, one day, this poor couple, obviously poor couple, because they don't even have money to pay for the normal sacrifice. They have to to purchase turtle doves. According to Jewish law, that was a provision for the poor. And so this young man and his teenage wife cradle their newborn son and walk up the temple steps to enter into temple courts, this poor nondescript couple, and somehow or another, the Holy Spirit prompts Simeon and says, that's the one. That baby right there that you're looking at, that's the lyric to the song of hope in your heart. And Simeon walks over and just takes this baby out of their arms. This is something that would never happen in 2021. Lauren Beinford, he takes the baby out of the mother's arms and holds the baby up. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Simeon begins to let out this song of hope that he's been holding on to. But this time, this song of hope has some lyrics 
that God has written. And let's look at what Simeon says. Let's look at what he expresses. Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Watch this. A light for revelation to who? The Gentiles. And for glory to your people Israel. Tell me, what was, Sim, what was Simeon waiting for this whole time? The consolation of what? Israel. And now that he's holding this baby under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is this baby? A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Here's why this is so significant. From the very beginning, if you go all the way back to near the beginning of the book of Genesis, when God calls Abraham, you remember Father Abraham had many sons? Many sons had, let's all stand out now. (laughs) Abraham is the patriarch. He's the original. He's where it all began for Israel. And God speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, I know you're 100 years old. I know your wife's 90 years old. I know this is physically impossible. Logically, it could never happen. But I'm telling you, your baby's going to, you're going to have a baby. Your your wife is going to give birth to a son. And in fact, you're going to have a line of descendants that you're not going to be able to count. They're going to be as numerous as the stars and the sands on the seashore. And he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. But what does God add to that? He says, through you and your descendants, through this great nation, all peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. So from the very beginning, God's heart and God's vision was not just for Israel, It was for the entire world. God chose Israel not because God liked Israel more than everybody else or preferred Israel to everybody else. No, 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 no. God chose Israel because somehow or another, Israel would be his sovereign vehicle through whom he's going to reach the entire world. And that's all throughout the Hebrew scriptures that God's vision is not just for one people and one nation. It is for all peoples and all nations of the earth. Somebody say amen. amen. But you see, here's what happened. Because the Jewish people had been so beaten down and so oppressed by these foreign powers for so long, most of the Jews in Jesus' day had completely forgotten about this aspect of their identity and their destiny. And so what they were longing for was not the consolation of the world. They were wanting the consolation of Israel. They wanted a Messiah who who would not just simply be a Messiah for the world. He would be a Messiah for Israel. So this song of hope in their heart had become narrowly defined by their own self-interest. And they wanted a Messiah who would be a political, nationalistic, militaristic Messiah who would lift up Israel like David, not to bless their enemies, but to triumph over their enemies. And so to whatever degree, Simeon was hoping for the same thing. It says he was longing for the consolation of Israel. But because Simeon was a righteous and devout man, and he was closely connected to to God, and it says the Spirit was upon him, 
when Simeon takes this baby and holds baby Jesus up and begins to release this song of hope that's in his heart, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Simeon makes clear in his song that this baby is not just a light for Israel. He's not just a revelation for Israel. He's not just the consolation of Israel. This baby is the light of salvation and revelation and consolation for the entire world. And from that moment forward, everything about Jesus totally blows people's expectations out of the water. Jesus supplies the lyrics to the song of hope that was in their heart, but they weren't the words people were expecting. So for example, usually when a king is born, you expect the nobility, the wealthy, the powerful to come and pay homage to this king. And yet, who are the kinds of people we find surrounding baby Jesus around his birth? Absolute nobodies. Like Simeon. Who's Simeon? We don't read about him before or after this. He's a nobody. Same thing with Anna in the passage after this one. Who's Anna? Nobody. We don't read about her before or after. These magi, who we call wise men, what they were is astrologers from the east, somewhere out in Persia somewhere. And you know, the Jewish law forbids astrology. These are some of the last people on earth you would expect to come and pay homage to the Jewish Messiah. And yet somehow or another, they receive this revelation that a king has just been born, and they make this huge trek across the desert to come and visit him. We read about these shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem. You know, these days we kind of romanticize the shepherds, especially around Christmas time. Understand something about shepherds. They were at the absolute bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder in first century Middle Eastern culture. So who, who do we find paying homage to this king, this Messiah? The poor, the outsider, the nobody. The only high and mighty person you even read about in the entire birth story of Jesus is King Herod, and that's only because he wants to kill the baby. This Messiah King is not born in a palace. He, you can hardly even say he's born in a house. He's born in an overcrowded, manure-stenched cave for animals. And he's not born to an important, noble family. His dad is a blue-collar carpenter from a tiny, no-name village called Nazareth. These aren't the kinds of lyrics that most people were attaching to their song of hope. They assume that, you know, when Messiah comes, he's going to uh, answer all of our political questions. He's going to rally the nation of Israel against Rome, and we're going to have this violent conquest. Instead, when Jesus comes, he shows no interest in their political questions. He rails against their nationalism, and instead of leading them to conquer their enemies, he teaches them to love their enemies, and then he gives his life and allows himself to be crucified by his enemies out of love for his enemies. What kind of strange... Bizarre, surprising Messiah King is this. These aren't the lyrics that most people were attaching to their song of hope. And it was assumed that when Messiah comes, man, he's going to be best friends with all of the religious leaders. He's going to be one of them. He's going to think like them. They're the good guys, right? And so he's going to be like them, and, and he's going to uphold and be very strict about the law and the Sabbath and traditions, and he's going to enforce the law and cast judgment down on those sinners, and yet when Jesus shows up on the national stage, he turns all of that upside down. He befriends sinners, hangs out with tax collectors, the worst of society, 
And, and, and he's not, he doesn't seem to be very strict on their traditions at all. He openly flaunts it by healing the people on the Sabbath. And the only people it seems Jesus explicitly brought judgment upon were the religious leaders themselves who assume that when Messiah comes, he's going to be our best friend. Instead, they end up joining the group that orchestrates his crucifixion. This isn't the song most people were singing. They thought they knew what Messiah was going to look like. They thought they knew whose side Messiah would be on. And they thought they knew what role they were going to play in liberating Israel. They had it all down. But because they were writing their own lyrics to their song of hope, they completely missed the song God was playing. Simeon got it, but most of these people missed it. And here's what I think this has to teach us. As, a, as the people of God, we've got to always remember that it's not our job to supply the lyrics to the song of hope that's on the inside. I think Emily Dickinson got it exactly right. Our tune is to be a tune without the words. And we're to sing this song, but we gotta let God define it. Let it gotta let God write the lyrics. Here's what I mean. Let me make this practical. I've been speaking in metaphor. Let me make it practical for you. So, so many of us, I'm sure, whether you're in this room or watching on the live stream or listening by some other means, we have things that we're hoping for. Some of you are going through some really tough times in certain aspects of your life, and there are things that you're hoping for. Sometimes we wonder, what do I put my hope in? What do I attach my hope to when it comes to fixing my finances? What do I attach my hope to when it comes to saving my marriage? or when it comes to solving my parenting problems, or when it comes to finding a cure for this illness I'm dealing with, or even when it comes to some of the big worldwide problems and societal problems that we have, you know, hunger and poverty and, and the cyclical violence that's been going on since the beginning of human history. When it comes to these huge big issues in our society and our world, what do we attach our hope to? What do we put our hope in? And if we're not abiding in Christ, what we can tend to do, and I'm talking about Christians, not non-Christians. I'm talking about even people in this room. What can happen is we can, we, can, we can tend to take this hope in our hearts and we attach it to things we can see and things we can do, things that we can accomplish, things that are under our control and under the, the control of others. And we think, okay, when it comes to solving my financial problems, if I can just get this particular job or this, a job in this field, this career field, then, then maybe that'll fix my finances. Or if we can find the right counselor or the right therapist, that person can help save our marriage. Or if I can just get my hands on the right books, parenting books, that'll solve all of my parenting problems. Or if we can just elect the right people with the right opinions to the right offices and institute the right policies, that will solve all of these problems. How many of you have lost hope in that? <laughs> now, now let, me, let me hasten to add this. When it comes to dealing with some of these problems I'm mentioning, mentioning financial problems, marriage problems, parenting problems, worldwide societal problems, of course it makes sense for us to do all we can do. How many of you know, if you, if you have a, a, an unhealthy marriage, there's some work and effort you've got to put into it. And maybe a therapist and a counselor needs to be in that equation. And maybe there are some parenting books that you can read that would be very helpful. And maybe there is some job hunting you've got to do. So I'm not saying that we need to be irresponsible. No, we do everything we can do. When it comes to the problems of the world, poverty and world hunger, folks, we do everything we know how to do. 
We got to do it. We got to take some responsibility. But per, but for people who know the true God in Jesus Christ, that cannot be our ultimate hope. That cannot define our hope because those are not the lyrics that match the song of hope that is in our hearts. Because we got to admit that you know what. I can find a wonderful job, but you know what? Sometimes in this economy, jobs come and go. And, and surely we can go see a counselor and see a therapist, but you know what? This thing, you know, this is some hard work, and sometimes spouses leave. And certainly we can find parenting books and parenting help, but the reality is I could be the greatest parent on the planet, but my kid still has free will, and they could still choose to go in a wayward direction. And certainly we can elect people to office who we think have integrity and have good opinions and policies and we can put them in office to try to solve some of these problems. But let's just be real. When you've got broken people who are trying to fix a broken world, sometimes we just break it even further. So we do all we know how to do, but those are not the lyrics that match the tune we're singing. Church, our hope, and it's the only hope the world's got, is in the lyric of Jesus Christ. The one who Simeon was holding and proclaimed to be the consolation of the entire world. The one whose death saves us. Who's already cleansed us. Who's already redeemed us. Who's forgiven us our sins as far as the east is from the west. Who's already seated us in heavenly places far above all powers and principalities. Our hope, and it's the only hope the world's got, is in the one who promised he's coming back again. And when he comes back again, he's going to make it all right. And his kingdom will last forever and ever. Somebody say amen. See, Paul says that the sufferings of this present age cannot be compared to the glory that God has in store for those who love him. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. No human mind can even conceive or imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back and makes it all right. But our hope is in that coming kingdom when what Jesus did on the cross will be manifest throughout the entire cosmos. And there's not going to be any more sickness Come on, there's not going to be any more disease, no more death, no more hatred and hostility and violence, no more world hunger, no more poverty, and all of the troubles and all of the struggles and all of the problems that exist in the world today, they're going to be replaced by the perfect, unwavering love of God that will define every square inch of the cosmos. That's what our hope is in, and it's the only hope that matches the song in our hearts. And so I think in the midst of all of the struggles we have, whether personal struggles or worldwide struggles, in the midst of all of the troubles that we see and experience in this life, I think it'll do our hearts some good to periodically carve out space and time and prayer, and we just let the Holy Spirit ignite our imagination to, to envision that coming kingdom and what it's going to be like when all is made right. And of course, just know that whatever you envision and imagine, it's going to be infinitely greater than that. Because our minds cannot imagine what it's going to be like. We can't possibly conceive the things God has in store. But it'll do our hearts some good with the Holy Spirit's help as best we can to enter into that and to get as close to it as possible. Because one of the things I've learned, and I think many of you have learned this, is that I can't fix everything. The problems that exist in my life or in the world, we can't fix it all. You know, sometimes there are people in our life, loved ones, friends, family members, brothers, sisters, sons, granddaughters, and, and they have some type of affliction. 
like a psychological affliction, some type of disorder, or maybe it's a physical affliction, and, and we want so much to make it right. We wish we could just wave a magic wand and make it all go away, but we can't. We do all we can, but the problem's still there and they're still hurting. Or sometimes what's even worse is when we have a family member, a loved one, who, who begins making decisions and choices that are going to lead them down a destructive path, maybe for the hundredth time. And we're watching it, we're watching it happen again. And we, 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 hoped, we hoped that it was all going to be over with after the 99th time. But now they, they go back to it. They relapse. And it's painful to watch because we, we're powerless. We do, all, we do everything we can do. We pray for them. We encourage them. We talk with them. We support them in every way we know how. But there comes a point we realize, I've done all I know how to do, and, and it's not enough. And this, this problem is not fixed, and there's nothing I can do to fix it. I think whether it's those types of situations or even when it comes to the big issues of the world— when you look at the poverty and the hunger and the brokenness, the violence that is cyclical in our, our society and our world, you know, we want so much to just make it all go away and we do all we can do. And I, I thank God for organizations like Gleanings and World Vision and, and we can do all that we can do. But, but the reality is this, folks. There are some problems, as much as we can do, there are some problems that are not fixable and they won't be fixable until the world's no longer broken. Some problems are not fixable until Jesus comes back and makes it right. So in the meantime, in those situations where you've done all you can do and yet the problem's still there and it's not going away, in those situations, I think it'll do your heart some good to take time in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to help you envision that coming kingdom when everything is made right. Sometimes the only good news about a problem in your life is that you know it's temporary. And it's not always going to be like this. And sometimes that's as good as we're going to get on this, in this world. And so in the meantime, we just know it's not always going to be this way. God is going to make it right. And so you envision that in prayer as vividly, as concretely as you can with the Spirit's help. That's really what faith is. And the scripture teaches us that all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth are being reconciled in Jesus Christ. All shall be made well. How many of you are thankful that all shall be made well? We don't know when, we don't know how, but we know he's going to do it. And so in the meantime, envision that, enter into the peace and joy of that future state, and bring it into your present troubled state. It's like God's credit card system, though God doesn't charge interest and it's free. We just have to take advantage of it. God wants you to borrow from the future. Enter into it. Imagine what it's going to be like when all is made right, and take that peace, take that joy, grab hold of it, and bring it into your present state. And when you do that, it gives you a peace of mind in the midst of some of the most anxiety-causing problems that you face. In fact, the more we can learn to do that with the Spirit's help and prayer— grab hold of the future and bring it into the present, it actually makes your present troubles smaller. If all I do is just focus on the problem in front of me, it seems huge. It seems insurmountable. But if I can zoom out and grab hold of the future and bring it into my troubled present, then even in the midst of disappointments and frustrations and even the tragedies of life, it can give me a strength of faith and give me a peace that passes understanding. 
and joy unspeakable. And it doesn't mean that now my life turns into Disneyland and everything's wonderful and everything's perfect. No, you're still going to have pain. It's still going to be very hurtful. But now you can endure it because you've got a song in your heart and you know God's going to make it right. And guess what? You don't even have to know how it's going to be made right. You don't have to know when and how God's going to make Sometimes we look at our problems or we look at the problems in the world and we're like, I have no idea how God's going to make this right. You don't have to know. I mean, think of it like this. When Jesus came the first time, Jesus came in a way that was totally unexpected. It blew people's minds. They could not anticipate the way he came the first time. So here's my question. If the way Jesus came the first time was totally unexpected, what makes us think that the second coming of Christ is going to be any less unexpected? I mean, there's a lot of people that got it all figured out. They write books. They can tell you exactly what's going to happen and what order it's going to happen, exactly what it's going to be like. They've got their lyrics written in ink, and they can tell you what the third toe and the left foot of the beast stands for in the book of Revelation. I just know this. I have no idea when and how it's all going to come to pass. I just know whatever lyrics they've written, they're going to be totally wrong. You know, sometimes the right posture of heart is just to say, I know Jesus is coming back and he's going to make it all right. And however he chooses to do it, it's going to be surprising. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious. In fact, however good you think it's going to be, it's going to be infinitely greater than that. Amen. And so let's let God write the lyrics, leave the details to God, and in the meantime, rest securely in prayer with the Spirit's help, rest securely in the knowledge that all shall be made well. This problem I'm dealing with, it will not always be this way. God is going to redeem it in a beautiful, unanticipated way. And then take some of that peace, draw some of that joy from that future kingdom and bring it into your troubled state now. And that's what can give us peace and joy in the midst of our troubling circumstances. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.